0: This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: When the jury panel comes into the courtroom
0: and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here.
2: And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should
1: be above the law.
0: A lot of us talk about that, but you actually actually it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah.
3: That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: Welcome to another episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Today, I'm excited to have Keith Mitnick on the show. Keith is an exceptional trial lawyer. He's got a $90 million verdict, 10 eight-figure verdicts, and a ton of seven-figure verdicts under his belt. Unluckily he's going to come and talk to us a little bit about how he did that, so you can do it, too. Keith's role at Morgan & Morgan allows him to be in trial almost every month of the year, sometimes two or three times a month. So that keeps them sharp. It's continuing an incredible legacy. And like I said, he's not only a great trial lawyer, but he's generous, and he shares what he's learned. Keith has written a great book, Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Follow Their Plans to Spoil Your Case. Uh, you've probably heard about the book because we've talked about it a few times on the show before and some of the ideas we've gotten from it. Uh, trial Guides has been nice enough to offer a discount to any of our listeners. So if you want to get the book, and you go to trialguides.com and you enter MITNIC19 as a discount code. They'll give you 10% off. Uh, I'm not, it's not an advertisement. I'm not making any money from doing this, but it was, they were nice enough to do it, and it's a good book, and I appreciate them doing that. In this episode, Keith and I are going to discuss how Keith became a trial lawyer, the mental process you should do before you ever step into a courtroom, the wisdom of the wise, which is a series of questions Keith says you should ask yourself before every contested case. The methods he uses to persuade a jury to give full damages on a case. And Keith ends by sharing the pep talk he gives himself before every trial. This is a great episode. It's packed with awesome information. Uh, I learned a lot. I have no doubt that you will too. So let's start the show.
2: Keith, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I appreciate you having me on.
2: Oh, I'm so excited. I actually listened to your podcast. I've read your book. It's definitely helped me in my trials and I hope everybody reads it. I want to kind of start from the beginning. What made you decide to become a
0: trial lawyer?
1: You know, it it's strange. I don't really I don't I don't know whether it was Perry Mason or, or what. I knew no no lawyers. We had none in the family, didn't didn't have family friends. I I truly didn't know a single lawyer, Um, but my mother, before she passed, told me that she, there was something in a, my mom was a guidance counselor herself, and that she, some guidance counselor from way back in elementary school or middle school, somewhere in there, had some note in the file on me, said, I want to be a lawyer, and as long as I can remember, I said, I'm going to be a lawyer, and it just kind of happened, so I'm not sure what motivated it, but something got stuck in my head, and that was the only thing I decided I was going to be, even though honestly, I didn't even know what the heck it really meant.
2: I know how that how that goes. Uh, so you wanted to become a lawyer. That what brought you to becoming a plaintiff's trial lawyer?
1: Well, I, as it all started out, I thought I was always thought I was going to be a criminal defense lawyer because the only thing I knew was from TV, and it was always criminal. Nobody saw civil lawyers back, you know, when I was growing up on TV. So, and then I had a professor in in, in law school that I worked for when I told him, do you know who are the best trial lawyers in, in Orlando? Cause I, that's where I was from and wanted to actually north of there in a little town called Eustis. But, um, and he said, yeah, I know two of the best. They happen to be partners and I'm going down to meet them. And I said, great. Will you take me? And he said, yeah. And I was a, in the second year of law school and never even been on an airplane. And I get down there and I find out they're civil, which I didn't even really know what they did. And I said, Hey, I'm sorry, man. But I I, I thought, I was going to do criminal. he told me, there are a lot of good criminal lawyers out there, but by and far, the majority of the best lawyers out there do civil. You want to be a trial lawyer, be civil. So that's how it came to be.
2: So once you decided you wanted to do this, there's got to be a learning curve between being a new law school graduate and getting a $90 million verdict. Uh, What did you do to learn Uh, how to become a trial lawyer?
1: Honestly, I was a very fortunate guy that the the, the two lawyers that the, my professor introduced me to, he chatted me up. We all went to lunch, and they uh, hired me to work that summer, and I ended up going to work for them uh, as soon as I got out of law school. never even interviewed with anybody else, and they were plaintiffs, civil litigators, and they were exceptional, just very different, both of them. One of them was just to work every, look under every stone, and just outwork the other side. And the other guy worked him hard, but he was really brilliant, free thinker. And so I got mentored by exceptional civil trial lawyers who didn't say carry a briefcase and follow me around for ten years. I I, I tried my first civil case with them two months after getting my license, and tried my first med mouth trial, first chair, you know, two Two years after getting out, and tried my first first chair car crash case about six months out. So, I just got put in a position to to get hands-on experience, and then I just tried cases with these fabulous lawyers, uh, and we would just split the work down the middle. long before I was probably ready, and learned in the trenches with them. So, and I have, happened I'm not good at a lot of things in life. I happen to have a uh, natural gift for this particular thing and thank God I ended up doing it for a living and had some great teachers and just started doing it
2: that's great yeah you know people say oh it's so hard to get trial experience nowadays and I you know do what I did I mean just go tell people you'll try their cases where all states offered them less than the medical bills you'll get all the trials you want
1: <laughs> absolutely because most lawyers out there really don't want to go um, they're not comfortable going and they are happy to have someone come along like you just said and said, I'll go, you know, you want help on trying it. I, I'm, I'm happy to try it. I'm trying. Try Let me go try your case. We'll work a deal out on the fee somehow.
2: And there's a value, even if you don't get that much money, there's just value to getting in there and trying cases. Oh, goodness, I mean, yeah. there's great training and workshops and stuff, but unless you're talking to real people, it's not the same.
1: It's, it's just not the same. And look, I think there's a, uh, a natural um, stage fright with young lawyers that aren't experienced. And it's understandable. We are heck I can remember. You got how am I supposed to remember what to say, when to say, what's leading, what's not leading, get my evidence in, lay a foundation. I got someone on the other side torturing me and a judge who may not be sympathetic and everybody's watching and I want to look like I know what I'm doing. So it's it can be overwhelming. And you know what I tell the young lawyers is is I've got a phrase and I mean it from my heart. It's not about being pretty. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is jurors are not deciding over how polished you are in front of them. They're deciding it based on your integrity, your believability, your honor and honesty, and the preparation that you did to get there, not just in the hard work, but the mental preparation of thinking through how it's going to play out, and putting yourself in the best framework to maximize your chance of winning. And all of that happens outside of the bright lights and the intimidation of the courtroom. All of that happens where there are no mistakes. You have a dumb idea, no one cares, because you are still in the prepping thinking phase. And once you've gone through all that, now the young lawyer walks in court, and they sound nervous and stumble and and stutter and can't find what they're looking for and it doesn't go as planned. And If your game plan was a wise one and you tapped into resources, read the books, talked to more experienced people and used your God-given gifts of your mind and you come in there and and are straight with the jury so they know you're you're not BSing them, they don't care if it isn't pretty. In fact, it may endure, endure you to them some. And, you know, years later, it'll get more polished, it'll get more pretty, because we all want to walk out of a courtroom and leave and talk it. You want the judge and the deputies and the clerks and the court reporters and everybody to say, wow, that guy was great. But that lady was great. But you know what? When you reach that stage, it'll feel good. And you ought to thrive, strive for it. But it isn't going to alter the outcome very much. You already had the ability to win and do a good job back when it was ugly. So yep. long as you had your your presence of integrity and you thought through the case and put your right foot forward and your evidence in the right sequence and to use the right words, so I always encourage people: quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator.
2: One thing that I've really taken from both your book and I'm, you have a your. Is it monthly breaststrokes? You've got your your breaststroke podcast that I listen yeah, to.
1: Yeah, it's on. Um, it's under keithmitnick.com. dot com, and every month it, we do a new um, little 15, ten, fifteen, twenty minute uh, audio segment on some of the old uh, strategies. And every time I get a new one, I run up to New York and we film a, a handful of new ones. So that's a place for me to try to get out new and fresh ideas in a quick and easy free way to people because honestly i I know you and i are cut from the same cloth we are fighting the same enemy for the same good cause to prevent injustice and and i really feel it's a calling to share as much after years of it and i've been fortunate to be in not only have good teachers but be in a position where i try you know 15 16 trials a year because that's all i do now so between the experience and the background and training and some natural gifts, I got some good stuff to share, and I always feel like I don't want to go to my grave and 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 say and keep that all to myself or just share it my law firm. So the book and the and the tapes and the brushstrokes are means for me to try to pass it on for whatever it's worth to as big an audience as possible. Because we're because I know if someone out there says that helped me beat off an unfair defense and defeat it, then I will sleep better at night.
2: One thing I've taken from it, you know, you talk about the, the use of specific language analogies. I'm going to ask you that about that specifically in a minute. But you really seem to take the time to really think through your case and the best way to present it. How do you structure your life in a way that allows you enough time of uninterrupted deep focus to really do the case right?
1: Um, I can tell you that's a, I love the question because that I'm I'm working on. Goodness knows I'm going finish, but I'm in the process between trials of working on another book for trial guides. And it I'm not sure the title, but it's be something along the line of the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. In the concept, I've got an audio tape out that's about winning at the beginning. The real concept here is winning before the beginning, which it is And why I call it the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart is I remember fairly early in my career thinking, you know, I I think I really am good at this. But then I'd walk in and hear another lawyer who talked just as good, did a really good cross-examination, and I thought, I can't tell much difference between them and me here in this courtroom, so why do I think I'm better than them? The, The light went on, and it was anyone can learn to be a good talker. But what separates you from the pack is the thinking that goes on before you walk in the court. Most of those good talkers were just repeating the same canned routine they do over and over. They got good at that canned routine, like memorizing lines. But the exceptional lawyers separate themselves from the pack because of the mental process of planning before you ever walk in court recognizing the defense is going to put up a tough defense they always do and how can I dismantle it how can I take everything from them and leave them nothing at least as an ideal so I tell people it's the part that will separate you but it's also the fun part because working a problem in a case is like carrying around a crossword puzzle or a sudoku or whatever kind of games you like to play. It's satisfying. And the beauty of it is, it's a mental process. You can carry it anywhere. You can be on an elevator with a bunch of people and be working a problem. You can be on your back porch in the evening working a problem. You can be in a conversation with someone who is boring the tears out of you and act like you're the best listener in the world because you're working the problem. You do it in your car instead of being antsy to get where you're going. So you can mentally solve the mysteries and puzzles of your case anywhere, anytime. Now, some of them require more intense focus. That may be on your back porch. That may be close your door in your office. It may be leave your office and go down to the coffee shop. I use uh, erasable boards because like a mad scientist, I... I get these ideas and I don't want to slow down. I'm just throwing them up and writing them. And then later I come back and it looks like something out of a beautiful mind with a crazy <laughs> mathematician. But in a half time, I can't even read what I wrote, but I, I, it's like you it poured all those thoughts out. So what it takes is a a routine in your life of thinking the problems in your case with an intense purpose of solving those problems. And it's fun. And it separates the people. I remember reading in a book one time, someone wrote Sherlock Holmes greatest gifts were not his analytical uh, strengths or his extraordinary knowledge of the science and the arts and of math and physics. It was his ability to focus on a problem long enough to solve it. So what I recommend to people is, please don't shortchange yourself on one of the true joys of practicing law of trial work and it happens before you ever walk in court. And it is that I'm gonna take a problem and I'm gonna think, and I'm gonna leave one last thing. I know this is a long answer, but you tapped into uh, something that's core in my beliefs and what I do. And it's, this is a core principle I use all the time to solve those things. I ask myself, why are we right and why are they wrong? And I do it on every single major contested subject. We got a conflict about this, a conflict. I list them, and I say on each one, why are we right and why are they wrong? But you have to, it's a waste of time if you're kidding yourself. You have to be brutally honest. And what you will find on some of those points of contention, you have to say, you know what, they're actually right on that one, or those two. And then you ask the ultimate question, which will lead to the promised land, and that's this. Then if they're right on that one, why are we still right overall? And it forces you to look at the pieces individually and then bring them back together and get you to the answers. And if the answer is, you know what, at the end of the day, I think they're right overall, not us. And get another case. We're not mercenaries. This is a calling. But in the vast majority of your case's answers, we are right. And I do believe in this case. So let me get to why we're right, even though they may win on some of these contested points. So that, and I call it the wisdom of the wise, and always go through, why are we right? Why are they wrong? And do it with intensity when it needs to be intense. Do it more lighthearted so you're still working the problem just as a way of life mentally. And it's not extra work. You're finding the joys, the silver lining and joys that happen in day-to-day practice if you make that a routine part of your, your day as a trial lawyer.
2: Now, one thing I've noticed, you talk about the language of the case. Why is precise language important, and then how do you come up with what language to use?
1: You got to think through, you know, lawyers, I think a flaw most lawyers have, especially after they got a little experience, is we all tend to think we're silver tongue devils and the r- right words are just going to pop off our tongue all the time. And, you know, look, the truth is they probably pop off more frequently than a lot of other people would in different professions, but not, not that there's no certainty to it. And so you have to recognize I need to sit down and not every word, for goodness sake, you'd be tongue tied if every word you were being ultra careful of what you said, but on the key words, I call them the framing words, the words that are going to create the structure of your case and carry your case through the assault that is coming when you get into that litigation and the other side's taking pot shots. You gotta think about those essential words you're gonna choose and think about is that the best word and is there a better word and is there actually a backlash? I picked the wrong word, it sounds good, but it's a backfire word. And it's not necessarily the right first word that comes to mind. I'll give you an example. We hear all the time, accident, and why? Not because we're dummies, because it's an accident report. We argue over the accident report privileges. The doctor talks about the accident, the defense talks about the accident. Everyone in life, they talk about, I was in an accident this weekend. Accident, but it's a bad word if you think about it, why? It's a defense-friendly word. Because everyone knows accidents happen, and they can—that doesn't mean someone has to be punished. When accident usually is a counter to punishment, I can remember my dad, you know, uh, mad at my brother and I were racing around and breaking something, and and wanted to kill us. And my mom saying, "Honey, you know, it was an accident. It's the opposite of a consequence. So what do you say instead? Crash? What? Crash is accurate, and you know what? Crash makes you cringe." Mm-hmm. And so you can go on it's in, you know, it's part of what's in my book, I got an old chapter on it. You can go through and do that. If you say following too closely, well, you know what? Anyone drives home on a highway, they most of the jurors are following someone too closely because that's how you drive in rush hour traffic. It just doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with it. Let's say riding your bumper tailgate. People grit their teeth and think that SOB I Had one this morning, right on my bumper. So I hate that. It, it, it there is an emotional momentum to certain words, and other words are a thud and a dud. And it just means on these key words, think about how it sounds. And the last thing is, get a thesaurus. Get what's called if you got an iPad, download something called Word Flex. Word Flex. It's a great thesaurus that spirals out because you know what you'll do. You won't just find new words in the that mean the same thing. They will lead to similar words that mean something a little different. You go, you know what? That's actually the different kind of word is more accurate what I was after than where I started. And just chase it down and follow the thesaurus and make it a, a fun part of your trial prep. And the words will be stronger and your trial will be stronger and your likelihood of winning will go way up.
2: You also talk about analogies a lot. Uh, why are analogies important?
1: Analogies, we all—it's funny. I read a book that um, was a some neuro linguistic something something psychologist super duper guy that's a professor at Harvard, and it was like I don't remember the name of it, but I saw it in Barnes and Noble. I thought, wow, it's about how the mind works, and I thought that's really great. I'm gonna read it, and it was it was horrible for me. Not not to criticize the book, but it was really written for somebody in that field of study. But I got, and it was a big thick thing, but I got through it, but I found a gem right in the middle of it. The gem was an explanation for why analogy works. And now that I understand it, and I'll share you the brief of that, is that I now, most people use analogies all the time, trial lawyers use them all the time spontaneously. I now recommend strongly using them as a pre-trial strategy in which you spend some time coming up with the most powerful analogies and here's why they work. Here's the beauty of them. Here's why they work and here's the power of them. The reason they work is all the way back to the caveman days, scientifically, uh, don't, you don't need to read the book, I promise you it's in there. <laughs> scientifically, people cannot understand or fathom any, a concept or an experience for which they have no personal experience. Our minds are limited. You can describe it all day and they, it, there's a wall that there cannot be a deep appreciation and empathy in connection to what's being explained if you have never had the experience. So how do we learn about other people's experience without having to live every single one of them? Through analogy, it's, I don't know that, but I do know this and it's like that. That's why if you pay attention, walking on the street and friends and listen for the next couple of days, how many people say it's like, it's just part of a conversation because it's part of our means of communicating without which we would really have black, dark spots of lack of communication. So what a beautiful thing for the courtroom. And now here's the added benefit and power of analogies. If you think about it, we would all love to violate the golden rule. We'd all love to say, what if it was you put yourself in my client's shoes none of us, unless there's some state in the union, I don't know about none of us get to do that. Well, what does an analogy, which is perfectly lawful and permissible do? It is saying, here's something for which you yourself have had a similar experience. So it is not a golden rule violation, but it is a permissible empathy tapping into the person's own experiences. So they're very powerful, they're very powerful. Um, I, I use them all the time. Um, um, so so anything you say, it's like, and people will get it. Um, I got an analogy that'll bring it home for somebody who's got, you know, a neck pain, but it's not the kind of pain that is interfering with doing. It interferes with the experience of doing. They still are active, but they live with what I call pilot light pain, by the way. There's an analogy, pilot light paint. Everyone knows what a pilot light is. They got anyone got a furnace, they got that pilot light. Hot water heater, pilot light. It is that that gas light that's always there burning at a very low level, flickering, and sometimes it'll flare up, but it never goes away. Pilot light paint. People get it. Bam, there's an imagery, you get it. A lot of analogies are snap fast, which I love. This one's a little bit, a little bit longer, but boy is it a potent one. In your case, where someone has pilot light pain, they look natural and normal, and they're carrying on with life pretty daggum well. Maybe you got some surveillance film, and they're loading boxes or mowing a lawn, not catching them in a lie. Just you know, they look healthy, and you're talking about they're really hurt bad, and they are hurt bad. And so, how do you communicate that in a way the jury can understand it from their own life experience? Here's an analogy that is beautiful for that. You know, permanent injury a forever injury like this that is there lingering, that's a pilot light type injury, and I explain what that is. You know what it's like? Here comes the analogy. It's like somebody who sleeps wrong and wakes up with a crick in their neck. And the guy gets up and moans a little. His wife says, oh, it's wrong. Oh, I slept wrong. I got a crick in my neck. She says, oh, I'm sorry, honey. Oh, it'll be all right. And he goes to work, and he picks up a briefcase on the way out the door. And he kind of feels it kind of stings him a little. Gets in the car, goes to change lanes. He goes to look in his blind spot and he goes, oh, and then, you know, he's having to rotate at the torso to turn. He's got a crick in his neck. He gets to the office and sits down. Well, if he sits long, it's bugging him. So he gets up moves around. If he stands too long, it's bugging him. He's up and down all day, goes home, same thing in the car, picking up the briefcase, the same thing, it's there, bugging him. Walks in the door, wife says, how was your day? I says, "That's ah, it's all right, but this neck thing is, is really irritating. She says, "Well, oh, honey, if it doesn't get better, you need to go to the doctor." Nah, I'll be fine. Goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, grumbles, "What's wrong? I was hoping it'd be gone." No, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fine. Goes to work, same thing. Changing lanes, picking up briefcase, sitting, standing. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't call in sick to work. It's not that kind of pain. You know what else he doesn't do? He doesn't walk around holding his neck going, ow, ow, because people think he's the biggest baby in the world. So he just gets on with his life. But it's there. And it's starting to now on day two take a toll and impact his mood. It's starting to put him in a bad mood. Even though no one around him would have a clue. And he goes home that day, comes in the door, and he's short with the kids. And his wife says, what's the matter with you? And he says, sorry, honey, this thing's driving me crazy. And it's gnawing on my nerves, this, this crick in my neck. She says, well, you need to go to the doctor. And this time a little less concerned, and a little more, I don't want to crank in the house. And he goes to bed now, again, gets up on the third day, wife's in brushing her teeth and she hears, hallelujah. She says, what? And he goes, it's gone. Well, you know what this kind of injury, this pilot light, but forever injuries like, it's just like that except there's no hallelujah ever. Now I promise you when you do that, everybody on that jurors woke up with a crick in the neck. Yep. Every one of them has gotten the day two and thought if this thing doesn't go soon, I am going to have a fit. Everyone was relieved to no end when it was gone. And everyone is going to say, if you telling me someone thrust that into my life unnaturally and it never, ever went away, it was a new way of life, you'd have to back up a truck of money to put me <laughs> through that. I get it. That's a big deal. And how did we get there? Analogy. Why does it work? Because the jury can understand it independently and through their own lives. That's the power of, the true power of analogy.
2: So what are the things you do to persuade a jury to give fair damages in a case?
1: Um, I think there are two essential parts to persuading a jury to give what I call maximum justice. Full damages, not discount, not half, full damages. And it's this, number, and the first one's gonna sound silly. But it's not at all. It's extraordinarily important. And the first one is you got to believe. You've got to believe, and I want to come back to that and talk to that for a minute. But let me give you the second one first. The second one is you need to present them with a reasonable damage model. You need to show them that this number that may, on a surface, appear to be high, really is fair and reasonable because. It is justifiable. You have validated it with some model that makes sense, and if you believe and you validate, then the jury is not going to punish you, even if they disagree. Think about it. You're going to establish a rapport with the jury, or you're in trouble anyhow. Your client hopefully will have done a good job, and the jury will have related to him. And if they don't, you're in trouble. But if you presume your client has done a a nice job of communicating their injuries and the jurors went away with a a good feeling about them, and they have connected with you and find you to be a trustworthy person because you have been trustworthy, why would the jury suddenly turn on you and punish you for giving a number that maybe they think is higher than they're comfortable with? But they go, you know what? But he believes it, and he's got some basis for it that you validate it. The worst they're going to do is have an honest disagreement, but they're not going to be mad at you and punish you or your client. You know, when they punish you, is when you just pick some big number out of the air, you know, without some some and, and blink and act uncomfortable, and they smell you don't even believe it. They think you're BSing them. Well, they will punish you. Yeah. So it is believed and it is validated. But here's the key to me in the belief. I gave myself a little pep talk, and it's really evolved into um, some of the stuff I say to the jury. Um, but it started this way, because I would get 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 nervous about it. And I'd think, God, if I ask for that much, maybe they won't like me or punish me or something. We all want them to like us. And they do like me, and now they won't like me, and all that craziness going on in your head. And I finally, years ago, had to say to myself, get over it, buddy. Because you know what? Clients don't come to us to have a philosophical debate over who was right and wrong on the road that day. I mean, they want to be proven right, but that's they didn't come down, hire you, and sign a contract, and go through all of the hassles of a litigation just to have a declaration of, of philosophically they were right on the road that day. They came to you for a remedy. And that's it. And there's nothing to apologize for that. There's nothing dirty about it. It's what we do in America. When somebody hurts someone else, when someone thrusts injury into someone else's life unnaturally, we don't believe in eye for an eye justice because that's barbaric. We don't go and say, I'm going to tear your neck up but we also don't believe in turning a blind eye to justice because that's no justice at all. We believe in consequences. We believe in responsibility. And how do we do that? We do that with a remedy. And we do that with a full and complete remedy based on the law and evidence. And we gather a group of appraisers together from the community to put their collective wisdom together and decide what's fair and reasonable for what was taken in the way of health. So going through that in your mind, you go, you know what, there is nothing to be ashamed of. This is what my job is. These people picked me to stand up for them when they couldn't stand up for themselves. And the standing up is all about getting them a complete and full remedy, meaning maximum justice, not jackpot justice, maximum justice, which is a righteous thing. So. That kind of a self-talking to is important. And I'm gonna give one other thing that I think helps people get over their queasiness about asking for full justice. And it's number I believe one of the biggest problems plaintiff's lawyers have when it comes to damages is bias. And everyone is gonna think I mean bias with jurors. And for goodness sake, that's correct. And that's a big part of my book on how you eliminate bias and jury selection through artful use of challenges for cause. But I'm actually talking about a different kind of bias. It's your own bias. You've decided the case is only worth X because someone else has told you that and they've told you it for years. Well, they were wrong. Because we can't use the golden rule on a jury, but you know where you can and ought to for every case when you're trying to assess what's a fair and reasonable amount for full justice, maximum justice you need to golden rule yourself. What if it was me? What if it was me? And that herniated disc that got a surgical recommendation and the person that chose not to have the surgery and they're still active and they still throw the football and walk or run or whatever, but they do it with the pain in the background all the time, gnawing at them, that pilot light pain, but it's always there, but they can still carry on even though this is as good as it's going to get. And over time when the aging process overlays on those damage links in their spine, it's just going to get worse in time. But right now it's this way. Well, you know what? If you were to say, well, that's worth, you know, hundred grand settling, 50, 150, whatever. I bet you if someone came to you and said, all right, we're going to do it to you and it's a hundred grand, you'd slap them for suggesting it. It's yeah. like, think about this. Next time someone walks in and got a pinky cut off and you think, No, that ain't worth all that much. Well, think about this. What if we said, we're not gonna rip it off, we're gonna give you anesthesia and do this real nice, but we're taking your pinky. Wonder where the starting conversation would be before you had any interest in that. So we need to use the golden rule on ourselves, and and we need to overcome our own biases, and we need to give ourselves pep talks so that we believe, and then we need to come up with good damage models so when you say it to the jury, there's not a hesitation because you really believe and they know you believe. And then you support it in a reasonable fashion. And the worst that's going to happen is they're going to discount it some because they disagree, but they are not going to punish you. And that's the long version of, of a, in my mind, the process necessary to get full and complete justice, not some lesser version of it.
3: We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Can you
2: give an example of a damage model? Let's talk about the case you've been talking about. You know, a doctor said it's bad enough to need surgery, but they can live with it, so they'd rather not risk the surgery, but they're still going to have to live with that pilot light pain the rest of their life.
1: Sure. Um, I have a, a, a list of them. Again, anyone wants to see them in detail. I don't want to be keep pimping my book, but, I, you know, I don't make hardly any money off it. And it's sold. If, if, if you know it's not like I'm worried no one's gonna buy it. You know I, when I first wrote it, I thought what if no one buys it, but two copies, and one of them's my mom. It'll be embarrassing. Well, thank hallelujah, it's a, one of their classics, and' it's sold well. So I'm not trying to get everybody right out and buy my book. I really I just we have this we're having this conversation, and I have a passionate belief in passing on as much as I can for people to assess which parts they like or don't, and and if it helps somebody a little bit, great, if it helps somebody a lot, then even better but I, I love to get it out. I always feel like I'm short when I'm done with a talk like this. And I, if the, I know if I say go get the book, it gives me peace of mind. There's a whole bunch more in there and I don't feel guilty. I, I left something important out cause as so, soon as you and I hang up, I'm going to go, damn it. I didn't talk about this and this and that was important to me. <laughs> there we go. But so my point is I got in detail, a bunch of good damage models in the book, but having said that, um, let me give you an example of probably the one I use most. And everyone's not, I didn't, I didn't it. it's been around when I was a baby lawyer and I'm, most lawyers use some version of a per diem argument, unless you happen to be in a venue that doesn't allow it. Most venues do, but I have tried cases across America that didn't. But if it's permissible, the per diem argument, but I do it in a, maybe a little different way. I used to run math and do it all on a chalkboard and I, I never felt good with it. So here's how I do it now. I would say something like this. Let's say we got a client who's, you know, 35. Let's say you got 40, 50 years life. let say 50 years life is married. I got a 30 year old. Um, life is, we live life moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour. We do not live it in chunks. Sometimes when things are going bad, we love to skip ahead. You know, a a week, a month, heck, some bad years, you'd like to skip the whole year, but we don't get to do that. It's not an option. We have to live life moment by moment, hour by hour. That's just the reality of it. And my client's injuries are very significant. And my client will live with it the rest of his life. It even interferes with his sleep. Not that he can't sleep, but because he's constantly having to, you know, move positions so he doesn't wake up and have it worse. He's flopping all night. And if we were to take merely $10 an hour over my client's life expectancy, that comes to $5 million. Now, that's a lot of money, but that's a lot of hurt for a lot of time. And some people, when we were doing jury selection, Didn't want to be associated with a large verdict like that. And we appreciated them being honest about it. None of them are here. But every one of you were comfortable with returning a verdict that matched the evidence under the law and not bringing any outside concerns in here. And the fact of the matter, had my client been hurt a little bit, like a sprained strain, like they're trying to convince you of from the defense, but we would be talking about something far less. If my client had been 85 when it had happened and had this same injury, we'd be talking about far left. But those aren't the facts of this case. And the facts of this case are a lot of hurt for a lot of time. And that's simply what it adds up to. And that's fair and reasonable. Now I'm going to sit down and save a little time for rebuttal. That's kind of the model of how I like to do. And you see, I skipped all the math and all. And I don't worry that it doesn't add up to the penny. You say that comes to about. I'll be honest. You don't want to say, all right, it really comes to three, man. I'm just going to say five, for God's sake. But I'm (laughs) saying if if you're off, you know, 10 grand here, I don't care. I've said, and and you tell them the life expectancy of 50 years, you know, that's just an estimate. It could be a lot more, might be less. But if you take the life expectancy, it comes to about, boom, and I, I give them a nice round number like that. So that model to me works very well in a per diem. Obviously, if you have somebody who's 80, you know, per diem's not the route. We have, you know, you do one that, that's in the book that's about all times not created equal, and we talk about that. So they're just, sometimes you've got a lot of economic damages, you can use multiple of economics. Um, I have one where we say if you had a, um, if someone was hurt and someone wanted to do an experiment to see what impact it would have on someone's life to live with a particular kind of injury, and they wanted your client to volunteer, and and but they were going to, um, you know, of course, if they went through it, they were going to come up with a fair amount to pay them to go through it, and um, they came to him and they said. Before we talk about an amount, I've got to have full disclosure and tell you what to expect. And it's gonna start like this and you start telling the story everything they go through and you take it all the way through, you know, 80 years old later in life. And would anyone start that conversation at less than let's say $5 million? Of course they would. Now in fairness, no one in their right mind would agree to do it voluntarily. However, no one asked my client's permission so that is a fair and reasonable way to assess this, and a reasonable measuring stick to look at it. So another one is if you have multiple injuries. I'm I'm giving you the uh, Reader's Digest abbreviated version, but it, there's a, more to it, but you get the idea. And then there's just to throw one more out would be if you have multiple body parts hurt. Let's say you got a knee hurt, hip hurt, and a shoulder hurt. Uh, your neck hurt, shoulder hurt, and knee hurt. Well, I do what I call what if it was only. I say, look, it's easy to come in here and for us to say, look, he was in a car crash and was banged up and got some orthopedic injury. But that wouldn't be fair just to lump it all together and treat it as one thing because that's not the way he has to live it. So what if we were to take it? What if I were here and the only thing we were talking about is that knee injury? It was it. Everything else was fine. What would we be talking about? They'd do a mini closing argument on the knee. And then when you're done, write it on the board. And when you're done, say, now, what if we were here and it was only only the injury to the shoulder and the, the, everything else was bad? And you do another mini-closing argument. You write it on the board. Then you say, now, what if it was just the neck, just a herniated disc, and you did and none of the other. and you do another one. And then you say, but in fairness, folks, we can't just come over here and add these up and say, all right, that's a fair and reasonable, because the fact there are three of them doesn't make it each one individually lasts, the cumulative effect of having to live with that is a heavier burden. So the beginning of the conversation is whatever the total is. And in fairness, the fair and reasonable amount is going to be something significantly more than that because the burden of carrying all of those at once is, makes it worse. So that's a, another model. But the point is, you can see, in each one of them, I started with the believing, then I validated the date it was something that made sense. And one last thing, I used to say compensation. David Ball, I did a trial guide seminar with David Ball up in DC that was his and he'd asked me to come and I did part of it with him and we had dinner and brilliant man, brilliant man and a great, great jury consultant. I've used a lot of his stuff and read his books and have one sitting by me on my shelf, um, so I'm a fan. But one thing, that I, and I use the, 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 the David Ball damage to talk compensation. I, I still believe very much in it, would recommend anyone to read it. Uh, it's a, a great, great analysis. But one, just in, we started a while ago, but the, the importance of picking the right words, just to me, me personally, subjectively, I've never been crazy about compensate because I worry it sounds like a payday. So I picked a different word that feels better to me. And th- and there's nothing wrong with compensating. I did it a bunch of times. I got a bunch of good verdicts talking about it. So it's not like it's a bad word. I'm just preference to me. Taken. I like taking. And the reason is nobody likes to have their stuff taken. When you're a little kid and your brother stakes your toy, you take, take it and snatch it back and someone ends up crying. You're a teenager and say, I call shotgun and your buddy runs and beats you to the front right seat. You drag him out by the scruff of his neck. You take an adult. Why do you think people have a fit about taxes? They don't like their money being taken and for goodness' sake, try to take someone's gun. Nobody likes to have their stuff taken. So I like the mental imagery of talking about damages in the form of what was taken in the way of health. Now, if I got a sweet little old lady that ran a red light because she doesn't see good, I'm probably going to tone it down. I want to say she's turning it down. If ben is taken the health, you know, they're going to say, oh my gosh. In that case, I'd say, how much was lost in the way of health? But if I got a UPS truck for somebody in them, we're talking about taking, because I like the taking, and I like one last phrase on damages. Thrust, and you, you've heard me say it as I was going through those models, thrust, into his life unnaturally. Why do I like that so much? Because you know you're gonna have jurors sitting out there fidgeting around in their seats and they're having pain because they got a bad back and the natural thought is, no one gave me a bunch of money. And by saying thrust into her or his life unnaturally, you are separated yourself and it's almost biblical, it's unnaturally thrust into their life. If there's no comparative fault, thrust into his life unnaturally by no fault of his own. He was out on the road that day, minding his own business. Powerful phrase, minding his own business. When someone else who wasn't doing their job on the road that day, slammed into him and thrust this into his life unnaturally by no fault of his own. And now it's going to be there forever. So I've kind of gone on and on, but I hope I've packed some good stuff in there.
2: You have, I've loved it. Uh- how about dealing with I don't like to call them experts because I think the only they're expert in is and it's lying for money, but the defenses paid opinion witnesses. Yeah. Any tips um, for us on dealing with them?
1: Yeah, yeah. I got two. Two. Um one is I believe the best place to cross examine an expert witness is to start it in opening. Um and why I say that is that if they go back to them over and over and over and over, there's a reason they got good credentials, they're good talkers, they're good persuaders, and they're charming. And when they're done on direct, the jurors all want to go have a cup of coffee with them. That is a very difficult witness to cross examine. So what, what do you do? Get out in front of it, an opening statement. They're going to be bringing this witness, Dr. Jones, he's a doctor, Now, let me tell you what the evidence is going to be about Dr. Jones. They hire him all the time. The defense uses him all the time. 90% of the time he testifies, it's for one side in a lawsuit. It's the defense. And 80% of his income comes from working, being hired by one side in a lawsuit. And he makes a lot of money. And if you're in a state, you can give the money. You know, we in Florida, we can say in the last three years, he's made, you know, $2 million by representing the defense. He's made work for these lawyers 30 times. And in this case alone, he's going to make north of $20,000. And let me just tell you what the evidence is going to show he's going to say. I know we got to ask him and, and grill him before he ever came in here. He's going to tell you, even though my client had no problem. In her neck for the 10 years before this crash. No injections, no therapies, no chiropractors, no one recommending surgery, let alone doing surgery. None of that for 10 years before. My client was in a crash and the pain started immediately and went to the emergency room and it's never gone away. And he wants you to believe the sudden onset at the moment of this crash is all just a big coincidence. And the crash had nothing to do with it. It's just the normal aging process. That moment decided to start acting up. That's what Dr. Jones is going to say. Now, you know how he's going to be here? You'll know when Dr. Jones arrives. Because the judge is going to say, call your next witness. And one of these lawyers over here is going to say, we call Dr. Jones. The guy that's going to come in that beautiful suit, probably gray, maybe blue, with a, that wonderful gray hair, perfectly coiffed, is going to come walking through the back door. That'll be Dr. Jones. Well, you know what? Dr. Jones is gonna walk in and he's gonna start charming everyone's pants off and they're gonna have their arms crossed. And he's gonna think, what is my fly down? Why isn't this working this time? And you got out in front of it and you beat him to the punch. So that's a big part of it. One other little tidbit is they are likable often. And particularly, like in a medical malpractice case, you know, they bring down someone from Harvard, or Yale, or Duke, and the head of the department, and got a CV, you know, as thick as the war and peace. And, and no one is going to believe just because they're getting paid 25 grand that they just walking in there lying through their teeth. It's hard sell. And I'm a big believer in trial of the path of least resistance. So, one of the things that I help uh, that I think lowers the bar from you having to convince the jury. He just made it all up for money, even though he he probably did. Um, I just don't want to have to prove if I don't have to. And here's a good little way to get there. Look, Dr. Thomas uh, may be a a good man. Certainly got a lot of good credentials and done a lot of impressive stuff. Um, And he's a good talker. So, But, you know, sometimes even the best of men or women, whatever it is, can get carried away by the competitive spirit. They meet with the lawyers. The lawyers are paying for their time, and they have strategized together. Maybe ate dinner together. They spent time together, and that person knows they want to win this lawsuit. And sometimes people get carried away by the competitive spirit. And fudge and push the envelope, and say things that aren't really so. And it isn't, they just woke up and said, I'm gonna just, you know, start telling whoppers. But they just get carried away by the competitive spirit. And they go from being a reliable educator, just let the chips fall where they may, to kind of a paid persuader and they want to argue about everything and they're always pitching it for their side and won't concede anything. And you don't have to decide which kind of witness this is, but Dr. So-and-so is going to come in here and then you kind of start hammering them again. So the concept of carried away by the competitive spirit is several notches lower than big fat liar. And I, I yep. think that's a effective framework to deal with some impressive expert. Now, we all know the guy that's hired. I'm talking about the guy coming from Harvard, Yale, in a med right. mal who doesn't test. If you got that guy that every week's in front of a jury in a car crash for State Farm, then I wouldn't give him that. I would just treat him for what he is.
2: So I want to go on. We've been talking for about 50 minutes, but I still want to talk to you some more if that's okay.
1: Yeah, I don't mind at all. All I, right. Listen, I think what you're do I think what you're doing, taking over and over your time to try and share your extensive knowledge and skills and bring other people in that are, have, have got years of experience and some ideas is a very selfless act. And I know that's when I said earlier, we're coming from the same cloth. Anyone that's going to the time trouble and expense you are to share this information out with our, 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 our fellow men and ladies that do the same work as us. I know your soul's in the right place. I appreciate what you're doing for everybody. It's akin to me writing that book. It's hard work, but it's God's work. I appreciate what you're doing and I'll talk to you as long as you want.
2: I appreciate that, but I'm also selflessly, uh, I've got trial on Monday and I'm taking notes for things I'm gonna try to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good.
3: Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers. With books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code MITNIK19, that's M-I-T-N-I-K, the number 19, at checkout to receive 10% off Keith Mitnick's products. This Trial Lawyer Nation discount includes Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case, and Winning at the Beginning, The Untapped Power of Vordire, Opening, and Beyond. The discount expires on August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show.
2: So uh, what are some things you think we should, you could add, uh, we can learn from you on Vordire?
1: I believe that Vordire is, of course, your rapport building, and of course, your information gathering. But at the end of the day, unless you're fortunate in trying cases in some very plaintiff-friendly venue, and there are a few of them around the country, but the vast majority aren't, and I rare, I've been in a few of them, and it's—it's a—you know—it's like, gosh, I don't know what to do. I don't have don't have any, hardly any bad jurors on the. I shouldn't say bad; they're not bad people, biased jurors. But most of us try cases where, if you don't have nearly enough peremptory challenges, to end up with a fair trial. So, if you want a true even Stevens fight, level in the playing field, you've got to get very good at using your challenges cause instead of peremptory. And there, and I, and I've watched jurors get worse because they've all heard all the false publicity and propaganda about all these frivolous suits and things. And so most, a whole lot of folks walk in with a bad taste in their mouth. And the truth is the defense is going to offer up just enough evidence if they've got a leaning one way or the other they're gonna go, I I was fair, none of that affected me. His case was just made more sense to me. It's because that evidence is fulfilling their 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 anticipated what they were looking, they're looking for exaggerating. Well, they're gonna make something look exaggerated. So I feel like you have to as best you can eliminate bias. The best little again, this is a whole you know, big part of the book, and I this would we'd be three more hours if I really, really talked about it. But I will give this little tidbit. I've, there are certainly jurors out there who are wanting to lay in wait and and tank your case. Well, this probably won't work on. you going. That's that's a peremptory. You'll know who they are, and it's probably just one of your preemptors. But I've found there are good people, honest people, decent people. Somebody I'd like to sit and talk with and like, but I would hate to have them on my jury because they have beliefs that don't square with the case a personal injury case, which we're gonna be talking about a lot of money. They think it's you know exaggerating, it's profiting off of suffering and all that stuff. So, how do I take the fundamentally honest juror and get them to say the kind of quote magic words under what your, whatever your case law is to either establish a rock solid challenge for cause or at least put yourself in the best position that the judge will use his discretion or her discretion to exercise, uh, uh, to grant your child's cause. And what I've found is the quickest way to get there is back to the power of analogy. You give them a little analogy that'll make the point for them. Here's an example. Um, good morning folks, my name's Keith Mitnick and I represent Miss Jones over here and we're gonna be asking you questions about life experiences, opinions you have. It could potentially impact you if you sat on the case, could end up unintentionally giving the defense side a, a bit of a leg up and where we may be at a bit of a, a bit of a disadvantage, not on purpose. It's just human nature. We all have opinions or on subjects or beliefs on subjects or feelings on subjects that if you were asked to be the judge of it, you'd come into it some bit of predisposition that could have an impact. And the idea is for us to say, you know, you may be great down the hall in a different case, but we need to go through this to determine it. And the only way to find out is to have an honest, you know, this is an honor system, and the, let's just get it all out on the table and talk it out. will everything will be all right. Is everybody all right with that? Yeah. Yep. It's like if we ever in a competition to see had the best had the best uh, pies, and it was down to two pies, and one of them was cherry pie, and one of them was apple pie. And I was picked randomly out of audience to be the judge. And it just so happens I'm not crazy about cherry pie. How many of you think the only right thing for me to do would be to reveal that to the contestants and let them decide what to do with it? And all the jurors will nod yes. How many of you think particularly the the one that's got the cherry pie is going to want to know I'm not crazy about cherry pie? Hell, I'll nod. I say, now, Likewise, does everyone agree that not only is the right thing for me to do to reveal that matter of taste, but to also be honest with myself and not sugarcoat the potential impact it might have on me in spite of my best efforts to put it aside. Not to suggest that I would take some dried up sorry pie that happened to have apple filling and a wonderful succulent pie that happened to have cherry filling and throw it over the I wouldn't do that. But all else equal, when I bite into the cherry pie, my lip curls a little. I can't help it. That's the way I'm wired. So, does everyone agree that not only would the right thing be to reveal it to the contestants, but to also be honest with myself and not sugarcoat the potential impact it might have in spite of my best effort to push it aside? Because that's just the way I'm wired. Does everyone agree that it'd be the right thing to do too? They will all say yes. And then you follow up with, because you know what? Maybe I'd be better off down the hall judging the chilies. I pretty much like all the chilies. And then the final piece is to say, does anybody here think under that situation that by me being honest with the contestants and telling them about it and honest with myself, that that somehow made me sound like an unfair person or weak minded? And they'll all say no. Does everyone think that was the honorable right thing to do? They all go, yeah. I say, okay, now this case got nothing to do with anything as as silly as pie contests. This is a serious matter involving a a car crash and and personal injuries. I need to know how many of you have feelings against personal injury cases in general. Bad taste in your mouth, distrust, think people tend to exaggerate, you know, think there's there's abuse, a lot of abuses, so that you would come here, honestly, with some feelings against. I find who they are, find out a number on a scale of one to 10, how strong with 10, the strongest, one, the weakest. And then I circle back after I've gathered it and go to someone I think will model it right and ask, would it be fair to say that given your feelings that, you know, it'd be hard for you to uh, uh, assure the court you could be completely fair and impartial. Um, You'd be as fair as you could possibly be but the human nature of it is that it might have an unintended impact on you because you, you have a right to your beliefs. You don't surrender them just because you got a summons to show up here. Is that, a, is that a legitimate concern? Try to put it aside, but you couldn't assure the court you could completely do so. Yes, thank you, I really appreciate your candor. How many of rest do you feel that way? Go get the hands and say, did you mean to tell me by raising your hand, that you couldn't assure the court? Same thing. Now, very early in that process, I always say, now, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but my shorthand way to save time here, when you raise your hand or say something, I'm gonna say repeatedly, did you mean to say? Because that's what I'm hearing. But sometimes I don't hear what you meant to communicate, and I, we need clear lines of communication, no misunderstanding. So if I ever say to you, did you mean to say, and I'm off the mark, for goodness sake, tell me so. that will be all right with that. I'm simply doing it that way, because it's faster than me saying, tell me some more, tell me some more, tell me some more. Because i got a bunch of these subjects and we've got a bunch of you folks and it's gonna take a while, this saves time. But I don't want there to be a miscommunication as a result That's important because you don't wanna look like you're pistol whipping in the confessions to the judge, to the jurors, and you're not. And so you're, you're explaining why I'm doing it this abbreviated way. And I, you're, you will be surprised how you can eliminate a lot of bias. Once it starts rolling um, and it's quick, razor, its laser quick. It's not, it's a little clunky when you first try it out, but when you've done it once or twice, it becomes very comfortable. Pick something that's an analogy. I hear things like, um, I've used um, a competition who said in the best book, one of them was a romance novel and one of them was a mystery. I'm not crazy about romance novels. You can do it with movies. Um, there, you can come up with, uh, you know, in California, you know, cabs versus, you know, pinots or merlots and um, wherever you happen to be. My my favorite one I, I, I use most of the time is a barbecue mustard sauce versus tomato. I'm not crazy about tomato sauce. I will say, and I've heard people say, hey, I, I use what kind of wing sauce I like. You know, it doesn't matter as long as it's real to you. And the one thing I want to add before I leave that is this. When I started, I used to say, I prefer mustard-based barbecue sauce when I do my ribs. I realized, bad analogy. Most of those jurors aren't in love with the defense lawyer and pulling for them. It's that they have some feelings against us, our side. So whatever it is, isn't I prefer, it's I'm not crazy about it. And don't say I hate anchovies. That's way too high a bar to clear. That need to be, hate. I'm not, crazy about cherry pie. Set the bar low and make it the point is something you're not crazy about because the jurors are not crazy about this personal injury stuff. And then I go through personal injury, then pain and suffering and you know whatever other issues, motorcycle rider, you know, if you're gonna ride around on a motorcycle and not put yourself in the protective cage of a car and you get hurt and sue over your injuries. How, you know, I need to know how many of you have feelings against it. So, you know, you assume the risk, some of it, and it, you're going to be at least be partially at fault, no matter what the evidence shows as to whether you caused the crash, just because you got out there on the motorcycle. How many of you feel that way? So that's the Vordire in a nutshell.
2: One way I've been getting a lot of jurors off for cause and Vordire, uh, is by talking about the burden of proof, because a lot of the tort reform jurors just don't feel comfortable awarding money damages based on a you know, more likely than not standard. What are some of the things you do to talk about, because I got the best phrase ever used on, on uh, burden of proof from your book, but I'll let you talk about it, but what are some of the things you do to okay. talk about the
1: burden of proof? I I will do that, and before I go into that, I will add, I, I agree wholeheartedly, but I know you're a good lawyer. I've heard about you, I've heard about your results, now we're here talking about this. Your your use of the burden of proof is is, is very insightful. Um, I um, I like tying the burden of proof cause questions to damages. Now we're going to be talking about millions of dollars here. We're going to be talking about a lot of money, whatever it is. And a lot of folks, when it comes to if you're saying, look, this if you're going to be talking about that kind of money. I'm not comfortable with this lighter burden. I think it needs to be something closer to beyond a reasonable doubt if you're going to be talking about that kind of money. I just find the general burden-approved question will get some of the biased jurors. When you tie it to significant verdict, the likelihood of rooting out biased jurors goes up and the likelihood of getting cause challenges go up.
2: But the difference,
1: exactly. the, 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 the ch- and I I, I I I was just about to say, Sorry. I am confident that's what you're doing I just wanted to reiterate it but in any event the the change that I did was I like to to I've changed up what I used to do for years on it and what I would do now is to say you know we've all I want to talk about the burden of proof and we've all heard in criminal cases beyond a reasonable doubt and that's a very uh, black-and-white certainty kind of situation. If we're going to put someone in jail, take their civil liberties away in a criminal case in America, then it it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Meaning, if you were to sit on a criminal case and say, this is a terrible crime, and I'm almost certain he did it, I'm really convinced he did it, but I do honestly have a little doubt, and that little bit of doubt is reasonable. Under this very high burden of a criminal case, if you were following the law, You would have to say, under those circumstances, not guilty, and watch that person you're convinced did it walk out the door on your watch and your vote. It's a very difficult thing for jurors to do. That's the way it is in a criminal case. You often hear in criminal cases, creating doubt creates an out. And we've all seen it. They hire experts, throw up anything that'll stick, all trying to create a little bit of reasonable doubt so they can get the guilty guy off. We've all seen that on TV with criminal cases. Well, this isn't a criminal case. This is a civil case. And creating doubt does not create it out here. Here, we're talking about what's more likely right than wrong. It's a much more user-friendly, common sense-based approach where you weigh the evidence and say, you know, I've heard it all, and I think they're probably right. Makes more sense to me. Does everybody understand that lighter burden here? Because no one's going to jail here. Okay, but having said that, particularly when we're talking about a lot of money here in a personal injury case, and particularly on the subject, of proven non-economic damages, pain and suffering damages. A lot of folks say it ought to be something closer to that criminal burden, beyond a reasonable doubt. And this lighter burden of, of simply proving what's more likely right than wrong just isn't enough. It doesn't square with their beliefs. And I need to know how many of you feel that way. And no, I'm not suggesting any of you are gonna thumb your nose at the judge once he gives you an instruction. I'm sure every one of you will try to follow it. Here's the problem. It's easier said than done. And there's not gonna be a meter attached to your fingers back there that's gonna go beep, 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 you're raising the burden when you go to deliberate. And it's very hard if your belief is it ought to be more not to unintentionally or inadvertently raise the bar some. Does everyone understand my concern? So what I need to know is how many of you feel honestly, I think on the, particularly on the pain and suffering when you're talking about a lot of money, the burden of proof ought to be higher than this merely showing greater weight and honestly, I'll try my best, but I honestly couldn't assure the court I wouldn't end up raising the burden higher to square with my beliefs. Does anybody understand? How many of you feel like that honestly? And go get their names. And, and you try to follow the law, you're not gonna ignore it, but that's your, and I like this phrase. That's your best honest answer. Is that fair? Yes. And now you're getting all those folks for cause. And you have started the concept of, creating doubt doesn't create an out here. And you can get in closing argument. And they throw up all their stuff to see what sticks, like the criminal guy, trying to get them off for for a bad deed. And you say, you don't go back and say, this isn't a criminal case, you can't just throw up whatever sticks, you know, you're in some states like Florida, you draw a mistrial. But you can say, remember, we talked about in jury selection. It's in a criminal case, creating doubt doesn't create an out here. And they'll remember that conversation, reconnect with it. Hopefully, see it for what it is.
2: I could talk to you for hours, but I want to try to close it up by talking about closing. Anything in particular you can tell us, you know, guidance for closing?
1: Yeah, if you know, I could talk about closing till the cows come home, and I bet you could too. <laughs> it's kind of the reward for a hard-fought battle is your closing argument, which is joy. But, but. I will give a little something that I think helps skilled lawyers and dang sure will help uh, younger lawyers that are still getting their experience under the belt. But I tell it to grizzled vets out there and they'll walk away and like it. It's a really simple information management tool that involves index cards. And here's what my suggestion is. Number one, have a journal on your desk that keeps track of just three-ring binder. I don't a legal pad, something, and whoever's up with the witness, your trial partner, keep track of the the highlights of what the witness says, or something needs to be followed up on. Um, not everything like a scribe. You got you know a court reporter there. I mean, gosh, that's good enough to make the maybe the cut for closing argument. Whoops, that's bad. We better deal with it. And then when you the other lawyers up, you take turns and you keep it all there. So on the evening before closing, I do what's called walk down memory lane, and we go back to what the witnesses said that was really substantial enough to be considered for closing. Well, you've got the, it's all there. You don't have to try to recreate it from memory, tired and worn out. So that's one, but that's just the, the, now I wanna get to the index cards. I keep a folder, and I always have index cards at at the table. And it's a good way to communicate without too much whispering because the jury sees you whispering. They think you're talking about them. You can't eliminate whispering, but I try to hold it down and passing the cards back and forth is a good way to do that. But more importantly for closing with those index cards, when big things are happening while someone is keeping the journal, I'm also, if it's something I makes a note for closing, I'm putting it on an index card. And at the end of the day or on a break, I start just throw them into that folder. And it gets thicker and thicker and I end up with a big, thick thing of these index cards from the trial with all these thoughts. If I'm home in the evening and we're having dinner during trial with my trial partner and we talk about something, I got a good argument or something happened and a thought that's good for closing, all that goes in there. Now, it's time to get ready for closing. I pull all those cards out. You start going through them. Inevitably, there'll be duplicates when you throw it out. Or inevitably, there'll be something you say, that ain't, nah, I'm getting rid of, it. that's not working. So you call through. And now your deck is smaller than it started at the index cards. And by the way, by going through it, it's starting to pack it into your mind. Then I create three separate individual cards aside from the stack. One of them is my final words. And whatever I decide I wanna say at the very end of rebuttal, I put it on a card. Why? Because by the time you get to rebuttal and at the very last thing, you're tired. You've poured your heart and soul out. And you don't want to be going, what was those guys? I had a really great way to finish what the hell was it. Now, the truth is, those last words probably don't amount to a hill of beans to the outcome. But they matter to you. Because if you bumble at the very end, that's all you're going to remember the whole time during deliberations. You want to finish strong. So I have my final word card. Then the next individual card is I'll hate myself cards. And I put those like 10 things, six things, no more than say 12, and you've got 40 on there, it's worthless. 10 or less, hopefully. Of if I forget to talk about one of those, the whole time they deliberate, I will hate myself and say, Nick, you fool, you didn't bring up this. How could you do it? And if you lose, it'll haunt you for the rest of your life. That's what goes on. I'll hate myself. card. So I got final word, hate myself card. And one other, it's a damage card. And on it, I put the economic damages down to a penny. And then whatever, let's say I've got my per diem ready. And the total number it comes to. And I'm using 10 an hour. And I thought of a great phrase to make the point. I didn't want to forget to say something like this. Um, It isn't about how much you're going to get. It's about how much was taken. What's the fair value of what was lost in the way of health? I'm going to tell you this again, folks. This is so important. It is not about how much you're going to get. My client would rather have his health back. It's about how much was taken in the way of health. What's a fair value of what was lost? Well, I don't want to leave that in the damage argument out. I want to make sure, and I know that's one that's really important, but occasionally I get up there and go, damn it, I forgot that one. So that's going on just below the, down to the penny economics, Are any little reminders I want for the non-economic on that card. There won't be much, just enough. All keeping in mind, you're going to be tired. So I then, will take my stack and oh, and I'm preparing. I'm going, you know what? Now my stack's pulled down. I have my three cards. Then I'm thinking about closing and what I want to say and points I want to make. And I start adding cards and now my stack's getting bigger. Then I go back through this stack again and call, and realize, all right, never mind. This one doesn't seem as important. And I actually now once again, got two on this and I call again. Then I do something else. I reshuffle the deck because I know looking at it, I'm never gonna get through all of this. I don't have enough time. So I wanna make damn sure the most important is on the top and the least important is on the bottom of my stack. And then I realized some of that I want rebuttal. And I move that part of those over and I put a card on top that says rebuttal and put a rubber band or a gator clip. The front end has a rubber band or a paper clip. And the bottom of the rebuttal stack always finishes with, I hate myself, card, and my final word card. Now, I'm ready to, and separate, just sitting out by itself is my damage card. So i got the bigger stack for the front end, the smaller stack for rebuttal that ends with, I hate myself, final word, and just off by itself, the damage card. Now, I don't touch the cards, except the damage card, for the front end of closing. Because you know what? By having gone through it repeatedly, it's like being back in high school or college using flashcards. Stuff starts really sticking in your mind. Plus, you know the trial. You're you're up to your neck and the facts and passion and everything from trying it. And you've gone over these cards and called and added and shuffled and put them in priority order. And the beauty of them off a legal pad is you can shuffle the order aimlessly like you're shuffling a deck. And so now I'm ready to get up and deliver my clothes with no, no notes and no index cards. But you know why I have peace of mind for that? Because I know I'm gonna to get to sit back down and do a rebuttal, and I'm gonna go through that front end stack, and anything I missed, I'm gonna move it over to the rebuttal stack. So it's not like if I miss it, it's gone. And I know I got my hate myself card. So I get up and deliver my clothes. When it comes time for damages on the front end, I will say, now, I'm not good at remembering numbers, and I didn't want to get them wrong and be criticized for so I wrote on this card the exact amount of the economic damage, and I bring it out, and I give them the number and write it into the verdict form. Now, honest to goodness, I could just pre-write it on the verdict form and not go through all that, so why bother? Because it gives me a chance to peek down at the reminders I put down there on the non-economic. So then after I write them, I put that card down, I plant myself in front of them, I look at them, I believe and I deliver and I validate. Now I sit out. Now, as soon as they get up, you know how anyone's ever tried a case knows this, and if you haven't tried one, I promise you it's true. The defense is gonna say three fourths of it is gonna be of some interest to you, of that, about a half is going to be intense interest, and of a, and a, another fourth is going to be googly-goop you can care less about. And you develop a skill in the courtroom of listening very intensely to the hot stuff and listening less but still paying attention when it's googly-goop. And what am I doing when they're into the nonsense I don't care that much about? I'm going through that first step and I'm discarding left and right, covered it, covered it, covered it, didn't. Put that aside, covered it, covered it, covered it, didn't, covered it, uh, didn't, but now I don't give a damn at this point, no, no, no. Now I'm going all the way through. Now, while I'm doing that, I get interrupted because now suddenly I'm listening and he's into something hot. And I'm going, now that's bullshit, I have an answer to that. And I take a fresh index card and I scribble it down. And he goes, oh my God, I can't believe he said that, as if he's ignoring the fact, yes, the doctor said, the patient was um pain free on this visit. But the very next entry says has had significant neck pain since the crash. And they're just playing that game again of cherry picking and taking out of concept. I can't believe they didn't. I make a little note. Put that index card on. And I'm throwing them away, covered it, covered it, covered it, saved, didn't cover it, covered it, covered it, covered it. Don't need to cover it, covered it. Oop, new one at it, new one at it, new one at it. All right, back to culling. In and out of listening intently and downtime culling. Now I've culled. I now got a stack here with all my new cards of listening to them and the remainders that I skip, and I move them over into. I now have one deck left for rebuttal and it's all there the pre existing rebuttal and always at the bottom. I'll hate myself and always at the very, very bottom, last words, and I put them all in one stack. And now, as they're closing, you know what I'm doing? I'm reshuffling the deck again, always leaving those last two on the bottom. Moving the more important up, moving the more important up. Oh, more bullshit. <clears throat> I'm right right, right, furiously, put it in, put it in, put it in. All right, now I, gotta re- I need to reassess, I'm shuffling. You know who's watching me over there, like a madman working these cards? The jury. And number one, I'm a distraction, which is a good thing. And number two, it leads to this moment, because now it's time for rebuttal. And now I bring my cards with me. This time I got my cards, and I stand up and I say, "All right, folks, I'm going to move a little quick, Madam Courtroom. I'm apologize in advance. I'm gonna be talking a little bit faster than I normally do. I don't have much time, and I got a lot to talk about. Because every one of these cards is something they said to you." that I'm gonna have to set the record straight. For example, boom, I'd get the first one into kicking the teeth. They told you this, as if you would have forgotten, you were here in the courtroom taking notes, as if you forgot what the that very same, boom, and I put that card down. Next, they said, I look at it, you remember he just said this. How about boom, 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 just kicking their ass with every card is just <laughs> a, another pummeling. You're pummeling with those cards. And, those, and I, I say to them, you probably saw me over there writing. I'm trying to keep up with all the things they said I've got to have to now address. Because this is a search for the truth. And that's what every one of these cards are. And now they can't wait you to pull the next card out. <laughs> and now the judge says, Mr. Mitnick, you got five minutes or three minutes or whatever the hell it is. Then I quickly take a look at the next few cards. Now, I know I've covered the hottest stuff, because it was on top. And I knew I was never going to reach some of the bottom, but it made for a great visual aid there, that old stack, and it gave me peace of mind. I kid myself that maybe I'd get through them, I never do. As I'm looking through and make sure none of those top ones are hot, guess what else I do? I look at, I'll hate myself card, and it never fails. I go, oh, shit, I almost forgot this one. <laughs> And then at the same time, I look at my final words card. Now, nobody knows that's what I'm looking at. I'm just going through this ass beating card after card because I'm out of time to pick which are the best ones. So then I say, look, folks, I wish I had more time because in my heart of hearts on behalf of my client, this is serious business. It kills me to sit down and not cover every one of these and hold the stack up, but I'm just out of time. And it's time that we relinquish this to you and we worked very hard hand-picking you. A whole lot of people were, were called, but only a few were chosen, and it's time to pass it over. But before I sit down, I got a couple other things I wanna to say to you this last two minutes I have. And I take the rest of the cards and just kind of flip them down onto the, whatever's in front of me I can find. Now, I don't make a production and sling them all over the damn room. That's over the top. But just enough, and the jury goes, God almighty, I wish he had some more time. He was killing us. Look at all <laughs> the more ass beatings out there. And then I now know there ain't going to be any skipping. I'll hate myself because I looked at my little list and I say these two things and then plant yourself in front of them. In my final words, I don't have to draw my tired brain, exhausted and spent because I just looked at it. And then you can say, and folks, I ask you to do this. Please bring back a verdict. That recognizes this wasn't all just a big coincidence, and that the truth matters. Thank you. And you sit out and you finish strong with those words you pre-planned, and I can I'm not gonna go. Damn, I left something out because I hate myself. And I didn't need cards on the front end because I knew I had them waiting on the tail end, and having gone through them and over and shuffling them, it packed it into my brain. And as I'm adding to it, I'm able to shuffle the priority because of the mobility of the cars. So that's the card trick.
2: That's awesome. Well man, I wish I could talk to you forever, but I think we're almost at an hour and a half, so uh Oops, we better sorry. start wrapping it up. If uh somebody wants to learn more or to get in contact with you, what's the best way?
1: Yeah, let me, let me tell you this. There's uh they I have a I have a something that I'm really excited about if we don't have time to talk about I call it um, putting an end to the defense belittling pain and a tiny example of it was the pilot light I got a whole memo I did in-house our lawyers about strategies to put an end to them belittling the pain just because you can't see it and it's really really stuff that makes a difference I will be happy to share that with anybody that wants it if you will simply email me at kmitnick at com, That's F-O-R-the-people.com. kmitnick at forthepeople.com. If you send me an email and say, hey, I appreciate your offer. Enjoyed it. Uh, do you mind sending me your memo on belittling pain? I will fire that out to anybody that sends it and, and ask me about that. And the last thing while you're at it, if you send that, I am planning sometime probably in the, in the fall of this coming year, uh, a two-day seminar here. I go around the country and give them, and I thought I'll do one here. And if anyone is interested in it, no commitment, but you say, I'm, I might want to come. If you will say, hey, I'm interested in maybe coming, I'll make sure when I pick a date, I just notify you of it. So that that's that, and thank you for listening to me, everybody out there, and thank you for having me, and I know you will do a fabulous job job at that trial, and let me know how it goes, please.
2: Thank you, and I, I appreciate it, and I hope to see you at that uh, event in, fall, in the fall. I'm definitely gonna try to make it.
1: I would love to see, heck, if you come, I'm gonna put you up as a guest speaker. <laughs> thank you. All right, y'all take care.
0: Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com, to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
3: Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code MITNIK19, that's M-I-T-N-I-K, the number 19, at checkout to receive 10% off Keith Mitnick's products. This Trial Lawyer Nation discount includes Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case, and Winning at the Beginning, The Untapped Power of dire, Opening, and Beyond. The discount expires on August 31st, 2019. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.